the Lord for it. It's a wonderful study. Anytime you study God's Word, I'm really excited uh, about the study we're going to begin. We're going to study the life of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. And as we study his life, uh, we're going to be focusing a lot uh, in 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, and 18, primarily in those chapters. But we're going to study his whole life. If you remember a while back, I can't even remember how long, we did a study on the life of Moses. And uh, it was so wonderful. You can't study the life of a biblical figure without really... Uh, spending times in certain books of the Bible, of course, and so we're not just departing from the Bible. We're going to focus on the life of Elijah, but we're going to be all in the Scriptures and, and learn from his life what I believe God would, would have us to in this study. But I want to say this, that there's, there's nothing that the church needs more today than, than a spiritual power to, to overcome a spiritual power to live the life that God's called us to, a power to walk in victory, a power to walk as the head and not the tail. And God desires for his people to have that. It's, it's a question of are we willing to pay the price to have that? Not that we pay a price for salvation. I'm not talking about being born again. It's a free gift by God's grace to all who believe. But are we willing to pay the price to to walk in the fullness of all that the Lord has for us, to, to surrender things to God, to fast and to pray and to seek the Lord in such a way that he can use us as a vessel of honor. Because there is a price to that. There's a cost that we pay to be used in those ways and to know the Lord in that way. And You can't pick a, a figure from the Bible. If we picked Moses and we studied his life, there was a lot of lonely times in Moses' life where it seemed like him and the Lord and everybody was against him more than once. There's a lot of times uh, there, there's a price that's to be paid. Again, not for your salvation. This is not at all talking about that. Jesus paid the price on Calvary for our redemption. But in order to really walk in the fullness of what God has for us, there are sacrifices that have to be made. And everybody's not willing to make those sacrifices, but everybody can Everybody can have the spiritual power of an Elijah. You know, when, when the Lord called Elijah home, you know, he's one of the few that didn't taste death physically on this earth. He was caught up in this chariot of fire where God scooped him up, basically, and brought him to heaven. We're going to talk about all those things as we study. But Elisha, who is his, like his understudy and his servant, who now was going to be the prophet. Elijah's gone. There, God's always got a man. He's always got that person waiting in the wings to be used. And he picks up the mantle of Elijah and says, where's the God of Elijah? And I know sometimes we may think that. I've had conversations with people. I've wondered sometimes before myself, saying, I read these amazing things in the Bible these amazing miracles, like in the Gospels, everywhere Jesus went, and then it carried right on into the book of Acts with the apostles and, and Philip and Stephen and others. And, and we look in the Old Testament, we see, see these amazing miracles, and we'll say, where's that God? Where's the God of Elijah, right? He's still here, amen? And I think that's one of the things that God wants us to learn from this study. He's here, he's near, 
He's looking for someone that's willing to, to be shut in with him. He's looking for someone that's willing to forgo all for him and desire nothing else but him. And again, we're not purchasing our salvation. We're not earning our salvation. But we can, we can sacrifice and we are to sacrifice things in this life in order to have the fullness of what God has for us. And Elijah's life, to me, stands as an example of that. And so we're going to follow examples. God's given us godly examples. Christ is the example, so we're always following Jesus. But he's given us godly examples that we can look at and see their lives. And Elijah is one of those. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. And we're going to read a little passage from 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to spend a lot of time in about three chapters in 1 Kings, and we'll look at other scriptures as well. But I want us to look at just a background. We've all heard of Elijah, and then there was Elisha, and uh, what, really what was, the, what was the spiritual climate in Israel in his day? What was going on to where God raised him up for this purpose? So look at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse, verse 29. We'll start there. 1 Kings 16, 29. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and, and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. This, this is the, the climate. This is the moral climate. And this is where God raised this man up. And so let's read uh, just the first verse of the next chapter. So that's, that's the picture. That's what's going on in Israel at this time. Okay? And it, for chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And there's something very significant. You're, you know, I always, always taught in, in grammar and in English class going through high school and so forth. You never start a sentence with and, right? You don't start a sentence with and. But chapter 17, verse 1 starts a sentence with and, and Elijah. So all this was going on in Israel. It's almost like God saying, but hold on, there's Elijah, Okay. There's Elijah on the scene. And so this, this uh, story of what's, or this history of what's going on in Israel, what's the climate? There's idolatry, okay, at the highest level. It's always important who's in charge. Uh, when you have godly leadership, a lot of times the people will follow. And even if they don't, uh, it's, it's set up for a godly pattern and a godly government and so forth. Here at the highest level, 
of God's chosen people, Israel, <clears throat> they're Baal worshipers and they're setting up uh, temples to Baal and groves and so forth. And so the idolatry is the favorite religion of the land among these ten tribes of Israel. And so you might think, you know, here's Ahab the king and Jezebel the queen, and they are setting the tone, more than setting the tone for the nation. And we might think, or the people there might think, we know that there's no hope. There's no hope for Jehovah to be worshipped the way he should. It's gone too far. Uh, there's no hope to, to reel it back in and reverse it, okay, to where Jehovah gets the, the glory that he, sh that he should. And I would think that most people living in that time probably thought that. In other words, the, the, there's 850 prophets of Baal that are supported by the queen. They're actually funded by the queen. It's the chosen religion of the land. They're tearing down the altars of God, and, they're, and in their place, where the altars of God were, they're rearing up altars to Baal and, and at the highest level, and then it trickles on down, and these 850 prophets of Baal that are dispersed throughout all of Israel, and their people, it might have been the consensus of the average person there that there's no way to get it back. There's no way to get it back to a worship of Jehovah. Uh, probably Ahab thought that. Probably Jezebel thought that. Probably the 850 false prophets of Baal thought that. Maybe even the, the followers of Jehovah that were hiding out. They had to hide out because the climate of persecution was so strong. But there's one important thing that they forgot, and I think we forget it sometimes, too. You know what we, we forget? We forget God. We forget God. We leave him out of the equation, and we ought not do that. We ought not leave the Lord out of the equation. God has something to say about it, doesn't he? Jehovah has something to say about it. Jesus Christ has something to say about it. And when men have done their worst and when they've finished all that they can do, it's time for God to begin. And we'll see many, many times in history, that's what he waits for. He waits for men to do their worst. You say, God, why didn't you cut this off and nip it in the bud? Why did you let it get to the point where the king and the queen were, had instituted Baal worship around, across the country were literally killing the prophets of the Lord? They killed them. Why did he let it get that far? When men have done their worst, God can, with one blow, reverse it. We ought never forget that. And it's, I always say that it's not a question of numbers, not a question who, who's, who's lined up with Baal and Ahab and Jezebel and how many are lined up with Jehovah. It's not a question. It's not an equal equation. It doesn't matter. There's Elijah covered in animal skins, basically, and he lived as a rough, tough person out there off the land. There's Elijah who stood before the Lord, and there's Jehovah. And, and it's about to turn around. Amen? It's about to turn around. And so God waits till men have done their worst, and then he, he steps up, and he steps onto the scene. Things are not out of control. 
Things are not out of his control. Things have not gone too far. God is still God. And God can step in whenever he chooses. And for whatever reason, he allows things to go so far. It's up to him. And he allows things to go so far. Maybe to show his might. He allowed things to get worse for Israel. They, they, they not only went down to Egypt, they were slaves for 400 years. And at the last little bitter end before he brought them out, things got worse and worse and worse. They were told to, to make the same number of bricks, but we're not going to give you straw anymore. I mean, it just got worse to the bitter end. And then one night he brought them out. One night him and his man Moses that he chose to use. And that was it. He didn't need an army. He did, he, God brought him out in one night. The whole nation of people after 400 years of slavery. And so we need to remember that. But just to give a quick history, most of you know it, but it's good to kind of to get a good picture as we're going to go into this study. There, the kingdom was, it was bad. Things were bad enough already because the kingdom was split. It shouldn't have really been split. God allowed it to happen because of, of sin and so forth. But it split the kingdom of Israel in Solomon's day. Uh, when he died, the kingdom split to a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom would have been the ten tribes. And in the southern kingdom would have been Judah. And Judah was the one that basically Judah stayed more true to the Lord. Their kings were more godly as a whole. And the southern kingdom, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom was first uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam took over Judah in the southern kingdom. Rehoboam, I'm sorry, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, took over the northern kingdom. Now, Jeroboam was horrible. He was horrible. It's, to me, it was like an example of some of the presidents we've had presidents we've had in the last 20 years. It's like it's almost like we got the worst of the worst and we put them in the highest office in the land. Just their character, their morals, everything. We just, we wanted that. And we took the worst of the worst and we set them up in the White House. And everybody does homage to them, basically, because they're in this position of authority. Jeroboam was like that. And Jeroboam wanted to keep the kingdom. He didn't care about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was a lot like Saul in the sense that he wanted to keep his people uh, obedient and under his allegiance, okay? So what did he do? He was concerned that if I just let the people go worship at the temple down there in Jerusalem, I'll lose them. Their hearts are turned turn back to the Lord. They'll turn back to the to the southern kingdom, and they'll just stay there. And they'll, Or maybe they'll overthrow and topple my government. And so he goes, this, he, he really was like the first seeker-friendly church. Jeroboam literally said, it's too much trouble for you people to travel all the way down there to Jerusalem to go worship a couple of times a year. That's a hard, that's a long, hot, dusty trip. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to build some altars here in the northern kingdom. And you can just stay here. And he did that. And he, he reared up an altar uh, in Dan, which was to the extreme north, he reeled up an altar to Jehovah. It was a golden calf, okay? But he said this is to worship Jehovah, but it was a golden calf. He set up an altar in Dan, and he set up another one in the southern part of the kingdom in Bethel, the house of God, Bethel, right? He sets up 
a golden calf and says, you, you, my, my people in this, this kingdom, you just go there and worship Jehovah. He sets up a golden calf, and he took the worst of the worst. It literally says in the Bible, he took the most base of the people, immoral, the lowest of the low, and he put them as the priest for his kingdom. It's just uh, quite a picture. This is where... This is where Elijah lives. He lived in that kingdom. He lived in Samaria, which is the capital of, that, uh, of the kingdom of Israel at that time. Not Judah, but Israel. And so um, the Bible says of Jeroboam, over and over, you'll read this in the Bible, especially in the Old, Old Testament. You'll read this, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. You'll read that little phrase over and over, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He led the way, okay? He led the way. And so uh, this is what's going on. And we, so what's happening in the, in the southern kingdom? What's happening in Judah? The line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ would come out of that lineage eventually. And so would uh, on down the line, David. But he says he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So David was certainly before this, but I'm saying Jesus would come through this line eventually. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So you've read through the Bible, you've read through the Old Testament, these accounts of Ahab, just to show his character. Besides the Baal worship and so forth, and Ahab was the kind of person, he looked out his palace window one day, twiddling his thumbs and didn't have a lot to do. He says, that's a beautiful vineyard over there. I would like that for myself. But it wasn't his. It was Naboth's vineyard. He goes over and says, Naboth, I really, Naboth, I really like your vineyard. Can I have it? I'll buy it from you. And Naboth said, no, this is my inheritance. This is of the Lord. This is my family's in, in, uh, vineyard. And he went home, and Ahab went home and just pouted like a, a four-year-old that couldn't get a, an ice cream comb or something. He was just pouted. And so Jezebel comes in and says, what, why are you so downcast? He says, I really wanted Naboth's vineyard over there, and he won't give it to me. And Je Jezebel says, you just sit, sit tight. I'll take care of that. And he lets, stands by, and Jezebel goes out, and she gets some some base, wicked people and says, go trump up some false accusations against Naboth. Say that he blasphemed the Lord. And then we'll bring him in and we'll have him killed. And that's what she did. She had him murdered. No, no big deal. You know, make up some accusations. Got some false witnesses. They bring him in. Naboth did this. They killed him. And she goes, now go take your possession, Ahab. It's yours. Go get it. That's the type of of thing that's going on here in addition to the Baal worship, okay, just to show you the, the climate. And, you know, it's interesting. It says that God, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings that were before him. And I don't know that it's so much that Ahab was the worst, most wicked king. He was bad and he was wicked, but he was weak. And I think that's very important. He was weak and he allowed himself to be dominated by a wicked woman. And I can tell you this, a wicked woman can do a lot of damage 
okay? It can do a lot of damage. Jezebel, I mean, the name is synonymous with, with uh, someone, a woman that's treacherous and underhanded and wicked. And she left, she was, her father was the king of the Zidonians. This would have been the land of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and big merchant ships and so forth, a lot of wealth. She came from there. Their religion there was Baal worship. She came and married into Israel. She married into to a, to a Jewish man, the king, and he took her as his wife. Can I say, and I know this sounds simple, Old Testament, God had forbidden that. Of course, there was so much sin going on, it's almost like, what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. You can't play around with God's commands and think there's not going to be consequences. This man married someone who wasn't a Jew. Ahab was a Jew and a king. And, and uh, you can't think you can do that. It's not gonna, there's not going to be consequences to that. In the New Testament, we don't have the Old Testament command, but we do have a command such as do, don't be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. Certainly that would be in marriage, Right? It's the biggest yoking you can have on this planet with another human being to not be yoked, unequally yoked together with someone and think, I can get away with it. It's going to be okay for me. It's not going to be okay for you. Don't do it. Don't do it. God says not to do it. And so Ahab did it, and this was more of a Jewish law that he broke, an Old Testament covenant law, but he broke it nonetheless. And so she institutes this Baal worship, which was very cruel, and it was very wicked, and they ra- her first thing that she did, they erected a temple to Astarte in, in Jezreel. Now, Jezreel was one of the places in the, in the northern kingdom where there was, they had another palace. It was almost like where the king would go to vacation, and in that place, they raised up a temple to one of the Baal gods, Astarte, and, and then... There, there was, she supported the 850 priests of Baal and the groves. And Ahab and Jezebel together built a temple for Baal in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. Again, you look at this and you say, wow, it's just gone too far now. It's, it's out there so far. How, how could we possibly reel it in? Well, God can do it. And he doesn't. He doesn't need the numbers on his side, amen. But evidently, these this temple, he actually they actually built a temple to Baal in Samaria that a lot of people could go to and worship. And so these shrines and temples to Baal began to pop up all over the kingdom. It must have been a scary time if you really were a follower of the Lord to say, now what what's going on now? And and then they started the worshipers of Jehovah had to actually start hiding out. And uh, all these false gods all over the place and at the highest, the highest levels of government. And so then here comes the persecution that starts. You would figure that would happen, right? First, the Baal worship and the promotion of Baal from the highest uh, office in the land, the king and the queen. And then here comes the persecution right on the heels of it. And so it's not enough that they institute the Baal worship. They want to kill the prophets of Baal, and they literally did kill them. They began to kill the prophets of Jehovah, the, the true 
uh, school of the prophets and so forth, the people that uh, studied the word of God. And they, the prophets actually started having to hide out. And they were hunted down. You know, and the Bible says in Hebrews that there were men, Old Testament saints that wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute. That probably included some of these people. That's real people. They were destitute. And they were probably driven from their homes. There was a man named Obadiah who served in, he served the king Ahab, but he was secretly a follower of Jehovah. He actually spared. Now, now the queen had all these prophets killed, but he managed to get a hundred out of the school of the prophets that were truly desiring to serve Jehovah and hid them by two groups of fifties in caves. So they're living in caves, all right, just hiding out because of the persecution that's going on. He hid them in Carmel, and had he been caught, it would have certainly cost him his life, Obadiah. So he did this. The whole land was apostate. This was to be a spiritual people. This wasn't just any other nation. This was God's chosen people. This is the apple of his eye. This is the people that he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I've espoused you to myself. I've married you to myself. And the whole land was apostate. Of all the thousands of Israel, the Lord says this later in our study, we'll get to it, only, there were only 7,000 people who had not bowed their knee to Baal. That's not many. That's a drop in the bucket with all the multitudes of Israel the Lord says, I, I have 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed him, kissed his hand. But, but it shows the apostasy. And those that were true followers of Jehovah were, were fearful. And I, understandably so. Okay? Uh, we have seen times like this. The world has seen times like this. I would matter, imagine if you were living in Germany at the time that... Adolf Hitler came to power, or if you were a Christian living in Russia when Stalin came to power, or if you were a Christian living in China when uh, some of these others have come to power, or Romania and places like that, you would have you would have been afraid. I mean, the Lord's with you; you're still His child, but there would it would have been fearful. And the world has seen times like this, and we've seen times where false religions have gained the upper hand. Right? I would say in, in our day, you could call it false religion, but you might say humanism, which is false religion. You might say, uh, well, I guess humanism will be the best expression of it. Okay? Humanism is a false religion, and it's gained the uh, upper hand. And when wicked people come to, to power, and people that are given over to the spirit of Antichrist, but for, and they're supernaturally empowered, not by the Lord, but by the spirit of Antichrist. We've seen it. But I'll say this, God is never at a loss. And I think we forget that at times. And his timetable is not what our timetable is. God is never at a loss. I just want to read this from the book I'm studying. It says, the land may be overrun with sin, the lamps of witness may seem all but extinguished. The whole force of the popular current may run counter to his truth. And the plot may threaten 
to be within a hair's breadth of entire success. In other words, sometimes when I've looked at what's going on in our world, and I, I, don't, I don't follow all the big conspiracy stuff, I believe it, for most of it, okay? I believe there's an antichrist who God says is going to, uh, to gain control of this world for a time, okay, a short time. He's the God of this world, and he is going to come to his perfect power that the Lord allows him to during the tribulation period. I, th I think obviously things are being set up for that now. And it's going to incorporate a one-world economy, a one-world government, and a one-world religion. All three will be come under, and the Lord's watching it. It's not out of control. It's just like he said it's going to be, okay? And when things are at their darkest, there's going to come one riding a white horse whose name is Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war, and the saints of God are going to be following with him, and nobody's going to stop him. He doesn't even need us to follow him back from heaven, but we get the privilege of riding behind him to come back. And he's going to take care of it. It's going to play out like he says. But I've thought sometimes when I look at it, it's almost like, it's almost like Satan in, in education, in the media, in big tech, in big business, in social media, everything. Uh, we see this one world, I look at it like a noose. It's just kind of where did that happen? It, it got awfully tight, you know, around my neck. When did this happen? And I feel like when, and it'll be when the Lord allows, but I feel like anytime Satan wants to go in and yank it, he can yank it. I mean, the traps are set everywhere, everywhere. If you turn on the TV and watch sports, on the background of the wall of the stadium, there's some something to promote gay and lesbian. When did that happen? I wanted to watch a baseball game. They didn't ask me my point of view if I thought that was right or wrong, or they have a Black Lives Matter. For the NCAA, official college athletics promoting Black Lives Matter, which is woke up this uh, organization. It's like we woke up and here it is. It's in, it's in every area. You can't turn anywhere and not find it other than the Word of God and the truth in Christ and in the true church of the Lord. But we see the hooks are set, the tentacles are there, and I just feel like the only one holding it back from being yanked around us to where we're the ones hiding out in caves, okay, is the Lord's mercy and grace, and He's holding it. And I'm not saying it's ever going to come to that for us. I'm not saying it's not going to come to that for us. I'm saying that... When I see it, I see it like it's written, the author says in this book, it's within a hair's breadth of being a complete success for them. You know, George Soros and Bill Gates and all them are, are thinking, we've got it. We've got it. We've got it with, the, with, with this in, in this area, in the economy. We've got it in, in tech, and we've got it in the social media platform. We control it all. We have it all, and they're within a hair's breadth of having it completely theirs. And again, it's not a conspiracy theory other than if you think the Bible is a conspiracy theory, the Bible says it's going to be this way, okay? I'm simply saying it was within a hair's breadth of being a complete success for the enemies of God 
but God. And Elijah, the Tishbite. You understand what I'm saying? We need to remember that. So I pray that we're greatly be encouraged tonight and in this study. God is preparing a weak man somewhere that in and of themselves are weak that he can use. Moses stuttered when he spoke. Paul was nothing uh, in, the, in the natural. He was nothing special. We could go on and on. God is preparing some weak man in some obscure village or town or whatever, church, prayer meeting. And when he needs him at that moment, when he desires to use him, he's going to send him. And that's going to be God's answer. And he will be God's all-sufficient answer. All-sufficient answer. Elijah turned that nation. I'm jumping the gun two chapters, okay? But Elijah's going to be the one that calls down fire from heaven. And all 850 of those prophets of Baal are killed in one moment. Not one of them escaped. It changed like that. And the people fell to their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Did it last? Did it, was it a true revival that lasted decades and decades? No. But it was a changing. It was a turning from that administration, from that idolatry, from that noose that was around the people. It was a genuine turning to the Lord, if, albeit not for long. It was genuine. Now, I want to close with this tonight, y'all. I know I'm just kind of giving an introduction to this, but turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 59. It's funny because I was just, I, I'm reading through Isaiah myself, and I actually just read this verse today. Isaiah 59. Let's read 18 and 19. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense so shall they fear the name of the Lord. From the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isn't that amazing? Again, y'all, it's, it's not the point of winning numbers. The Lord wants numbers of people to be saved. He desires revival. Every soul he died for, Jesus died for. But as far as turning things around from the absolute darkest hour, God just needs himself. He chooses to use a man. In this case, he cho chose to use Elijah. We can't forget that. It's not about numbers. I look around and I say, how many people are here tonight? Not, I'm thankful that you're here, and I thank God for every one of you. But it's not like we were renting out uh, the assembly center because so many people, I wish we were, I wish people were getting saved and we were packed out in there. But God can use this group of people right here tonight. He can use one of you here tonight or one of us here tonight to do what he wants us to do. Elisha the Tishbite, he lived in Gilead. It was a rough, tough, rocky 
rural, outdoors type community. It wasn't the soft palaces. He wasn't trained in, you know, Harvard or something like this. He was, it was where people tended to sheep, and they were, they were blue-collar workers and rural and lived off the land. God had his man out there and raised him up and went and spoke to Ahab. said, it's not going to rain until I say so. Is that amazing? It's not going to rain until I say so. Because God has enabled me and called me to do this. It's, it's just really amazing. That's the God we serve. That's not Baal. It's not Ashtaroth. That's not one of these false gods. That's not Diana of the Ephesians. That is the Lord God, Jehovah. And he can raise up a man, and he's preparing. I, I guarantee that the Lord is preparing somebody right now. Probably more than one somebody, but he's preparing somebody now. There's no reason it couldn't be us. There's no reason that we couldn't say, God, use us. If there's a remnant, let that remnant be us. If somebody's to live for you and proclaim your name at the risk of our lives, let it be us. Let it be us. It doesn't have to be someone else. You can use them too, but use me. Why not? If we're willing to, to, to pay the price and to be prepared and to be set apart unto the Lord in that way, he can use us when he's ready. He reaches into his quiver and he pulls out an arrow. That arrow is a person that knows him, that walks with him, that will do his will and won't take the glory for themselves and won't deviate from what he's called them to do. He pulled that arrow out like John the Baptist. I've raised him up. He's a burning light for this moment. I've called him. He's going to do the one thing I've called him to do, and he'll die for me, and he'll come be with me. One thing John the Baptist did, announce the coming of the Lord. That was it. And the Lord says he's the greatest prophet that ever lived. It's just amazing. God, God's preparing. And I want him to be able to reach in his quiver and grab somebody at a cornerstone. Seriously. I want him to be able to reach in his quiver and grab me and say, for two days I want you to use it, then I'm calling you home. Or two years or 20 years, however long, to be used by God in that way. And y'all stand with me. I'm just going to close with that. Do you come? It's going to be a wonderful study. I'll read it just on your own. It's just three chapters, basically, that talk about Elijah, at least in the Old Testament, the historical account in 1 Kings. Read through it and be familiar with it. We're going to spend a lot of time there. But uh, let's just pray. Father, and y'all, the altars are open. Just come. Just come to the altars and worship the Lord. I can't say we're a whole lot different than the state and spiritual climate of Israel in Ahab's day, in Elijah's day, in Jezebel's day.